We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. Beautiful. That was good. I think that was lined up. Oh yeah, we nailed it. Alright, welcome to episode 12 of the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. I'm Dustin Redazel. And joining me is the only person on this podcast not devastated by the Super Bowl outcome. It's Tommy Cooksey. I, I yeah, I forgot about the uh, the Kansas City connection. Yeah, sorry guys. Um, that was a weird game. It wasn't that much fun to watch, even as a just a layperson. Like I didn't care. There was nothing exciting. No, it was very upsetting. And Grace, how how are you holding up? You know, it's been a morning kind of day. But I'm holding up, I think. There's another year next year, and right. one after that, so we'll keep going. Mahomes, Mahomes is young. If he Mahomes picks up the Tom young. Brady diet, this will be 20 more years of this. Exactly, yeah. Maybe right? 30. He's got a $40 million contract, whatever it is, so yeah. we'll keep Things going. Are good. All right, and that other voice for uh, listeners is Grace Casey. She's our guest today, and... Uh, Grace is a brand designer, and I know Grace from, uh, well, we were neighbors for about a year. Yeah, I think so. Nine months. Um, and for those who don't know, I, uh, I'm i a leukemia survivor, and my wife and I started a charity event called Row 24. It's a 24-hour uh, rowing marathon. How did you describe it, Tommy? It's like, uh, it's like Relay for Life on a rower. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. And so uh, I found out what Grace did and asked her to help me with a logo. And really with nothing other than like, um, here's an email. <laughs> it's rowing for 24 hours and it's to benefit cancer. She came up with something that made the whole thing look super legit <laughs> when, so when really it was just me and my wife taping together some ideas and uh, counting on the good nature of friends and family, and it was awesome. We we raised nearly fifteen thousand dollars to uh, to fight cancer, and uh, gosh, since that time, a ton has happened. Yeah, so, a lot of things for so, everybody. For everybody, yeah, yeah. So the reason I wanted to have Grace on is she's got a pretty uh, unique and interesting life story. Um, and we'll kind of jump all over uh, your chronology, Grace, if that's okay with that's you. That's great. I, I don't have the discipline to just like work through it in a story motif, so we'll just see where things go. I think uh, we should. I think it also stands to uh, to say that this will be the first ever female voice on um, the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. What, so what? this is the inaugural. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys no need pressure. some more women. Well, yeah, we're working on that one more. <laughs> a little bit of a masculine bubble happening. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. I uh, I can't speak for anybody else, but um, there was definitely a transition period in my life when I met my wife, Katie, 
where I just kind of let all female relationships that weren't like coworkers and Katie's friends just atrophy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, you know, kind of opening that back up. Yeah. So I'm working. It's on funny it. when I, when I said when I mentioned um, you were talking to you, Grace. I, I told my wife, and I'm like, "Is there any, any questions? Like a little, little background of your story and so forth." And I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of more about it. And uh, she was like, uh, "She's like, no, but but I might listen to this one." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we might just you know double your audience. I I mean, what in the world? Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. What what kind of guys would just ignore? Half of the human population. Yeah, I don't know what you guys that, have been doing. That's not a societal issue or anything, is it? <laughs> it's kind of a problem, but whatever. <laughs> so anyways, we're honored, and thank you for making history. It's, here. I mean, it's... such an honor, and I'm honored to be the first. Yeah. So uh, the things we'll get into is uh, Grace is an entrepreneur, has her own brand design company called Marrow Design. Uh, she is also a mother of two children and has adopted uh, two kids in the last two years. Yeah, a little over two years. Yep, they're Irish twins, so they're less than a year apart. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. And uh, I guess let's start with the, the adoption, because what I'm really interested in is r- some of the things I know you've talked about before with the intersection of your identity as a business owner and as a mother doing... Uh, both those things 100%, but I want to start on the motherhood piece. And, you know, you've adopted two kids. That's not a decision everybody makes. How did uh, you and your husband, Dan, I'll, I'll just say Dan from now on so people know who I'm talking about, how did you and Dan reach the decision to adopt? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're going to kind of hop into a little bit of jumping around in the chronology. Um, a little bit of a backstory on me is that, um, I was born with a benign brain tumor. It was, um, never really an issue. They actually never found it until I was, um, 14 years old and I got a concussion and, you know, they're doing the normal CT scan, not expecting to see anything. And, you know, all of a sudden everybody goes into a frenzy and I don't really know what's going on. And. Anyway, long story short, there's a tumor there. Do a lot of testing, find out it's benign, um, which is great. And so then the next, um, gosh, however long, almost 10 years of my life is just getting MRIs every few months to make sure everything's okay. And it was growing and I was having a lot of headaches, but it wasn't severe enough that they would ever go in um, because it's located on basically like where your brain stem enters your brain. It's like right in the middle. And as much as doctors know about the brain, there's just so much they don't know. Um, and so they just didn't know like, Hey, if we mess with this area, what's, what's going to happen. And so, um, how old are you at this time? So I was 14 when they found it. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was seventh grade, eighth grade, eighth grade. Wow. Um, And then they didn't do anything about it until I was 20. I was in college, I was in art school, and um, noticed that I was struggling to control my hand, and my handwriting was changing really dramatically, pretty quickly, and my left eye was um, starting to behave in really odd ways. And because I knew of the brain tumor, and I knew, you know, what my neurosurgeon and um, neurologist had 
told me to look out for. Luckily, I was able to get into surgery early enough to um, prevent any permanent damage other than one spot in my left eye that's permanently double vision. So that kicked off a string of surgeries that um, Tommy and I actually talked a little bit about. Um, I They got part of the brain tumor out and then went into a year later um, what's called a Chiari malformation surgery, which is basically where your brain starts being pushed out of your skull because of pressure or whatnot. And then I developed um, trauma-induced hydrocephalus, which is where your brain stops being able to control pressure. And then I, I got some devices put in my head, they're called shunts, that help my brain control pressure. Um, and Tommy and I connected a little bit about that um, before we hopped on this call, which was interesting. This is so. This is so. Let me, this, thank you for sharing all this. By the way, um, this is. I mean, my my mind is like spinning. Because, so I had my first ever surgery, ever, like my first ever um, uh, where they put the needle. What's the what's IV? The, uh, IV. My first ever IV at the age of thirty five, like like six weeks ago. And I was like, pan- I was like hyperventilating. Going your, uh, in. Did your veins like clamp up? Oh yeah, I to the point where I had to tell the lady. Uh, the, the nurse, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to make it for this one. Can you lay me back? <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm listening to this and, and, you know, I don't want to take away from your story here, uh, but I just can't imagine what's going through your, your mind, what, you know, the feelings you're going through as a 20 year old thinking, oh, this thing is benign. It'll probably never spring up. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's like, now we got to rush into action. So anyway, um, I think, you know, in the moment, I think we've all experienced things like this. You just kind of go into go mode, and I think it's more than you can comprehend at that time. And so you just shut, or at least this is how my my mind works. Dan, my husband, calls it my mind vice, where I put something in my (laughs) mind vice, and I just crush it, and I just keep it in that little box. Um, And then I probably process it five years later, and it's like a mess. But, um, yeah, at the time, like, for my first surgery, my mom was actually out of the country, and my dad and I had to make the decision to not tell her that I was getting the surgery until after she landed back in the States because we knew she couldn't get back and she was just going to lose it. And so, anyway, that's a long story, and it's totally changed my relationship with my dad in a good way, but... um, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard for me not to like run down that path since like me and Tommy love getting into some of that stuff. But it sounds like because uh, I experienced this with uh, when we found out I had leukemia. You know, we we went from thinking I was yours healthy was a, to yours was a short, very short timeline, right? Like six days or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We went. Uh, I went from thinking I had nothing to you have leukemia in the space of like thirty six hours, and like, like when my, you're getting married, right? And my health just degraded so quickly. But what I was, it sounds like uh, the mind vice situation. There is something about crisis that helps simplify everything. Like the number one priority becomes so clear that it's easy to let go of, you know, what, what do we normally juggle? Let's say like 20 things and things like 15 to 20 on the list don't get that much attention. But when you have an extreme crisis, you drop like all but two or three. Yes. You know? Yeah. And we so. we experienced this a little bit. We'll probably get into this story later, but with the adoption of our daughter, Ada, um, mm. it was another mind by situation. 
because we adopted her on four days notice and we're not expecting to in any way. Um, our son was not even a year old. So, um, yeah, well, we can talk about that later, but yes, Dustin, the mind vice, I mean, we joke about it, my husband and I, but I really think it's a, you know, they have the primal fight or flight. I think there's a Mm -hmm. primal fight, flight, and mind vice. Yeah. It's a real thing. So how did, uh... You find out that you have to get these shunts put in, amongst other things. What was the the total time? I don't know if like under the knife or but saying, okay, we have to do something. We have to act now to, I think I'm good. And is this still an ongoing thing that you're just going to have to deal with the rest of your life? It sounds like if you still have the shunts in. Yeah, so... Um... I have had a headache every day for the last 10 years. Oh, my gosh. And the severity of that headache is different. Obviously, prior to the surgeries and in between the surgeries, it was pretty debilitating. Um, I had to, you know, leave my job. I had to move back in with my parents. Um, Yeah. And then the shunts post-surgeries and shunts and all of that, um, I get my shunts adjusted periodically, which is a modern miracle that they can adjust those things magnetically. They basically just hold a magnet to your head and, like, turn a little dial, and you literally hear a and you can hear the shunts moving in your head. But um, That's so wild. I, like, I... I was bothered just so, like, I was completely numbed up when I had to get a bone marrow biopsy. Oh, which are painful. Uh, yeah, it was terrible. But, like, the once I knew it was, the first one was awful. But the second one, like, once I knew it was happening, I was completely numbed up. It didn't really feel like much anymore. But feeling the grinding in a place where it's not supposed to grind, even when it's not painful, is so disturbing. Are you used to the magnet? in your head I am now um the first time it happened they didn't prepare me for the sound and so I definitely I was like did it just dislodge like what happened um it didn't hurt other than like pressure um on the because they're pushing it pretty hard against the shunt but um yeah that was a little disconcerting um yeah so other than you know getting the shunt adjusted I'm in a season where I'm you know they've um, recommended additional surgeries and I'm at a place where I I really want to give my body the space and time to try to heal itself and so you know we have adjusted our lives and my life to take out as many of the triggers as we can for really bad head days um, that was one of the kind of push off points for working on my own full time um, and that has really helped and little things like um, limiting the number of really deep friends we have because social interactions are a really big trigger for me um, as far as having bad headaches um, and bad head days. So, you know, I pray and hope and believe that one day I will wake up without a headache. Um, We structured our lives so that it's kind of a low hum, you know, with ups and downs um, throughout the day. But, uh, yeah. So. So, do you feel? I'm. I'm sorry. I'm just curious now. Do you think that uh, it sounds like you've made something of a connection to stress and the headaches? 
major. Um, yes, so over the course of the last um, 10 years, I'm coming up on the 10th anniversary of my first surgery, um, I have tuned in to my body, and really specifically my brain, in really big ways, and stress is a major trigger. You know, when I worked mm. at an agency and when I worked um, – for marketing company, you don't have that option to say like, hey, I'm having a really, really bad head day. Um, I need to work in the dark. I need to lay on the couch. I need to do this, that, or the other. Um, you just kind of have to put your head down and keep going. Um, and ultimately, I believe that hurt me because I did do that for a long time. And I believe the brain heals really slowly. And I, I believe that I slowed that process even further and so Mm. um yes stress is huge and stress is a huge trigger for a lot of different physiological things in our body but for me the biggest one is definitely um my brain and my my brain spikes in pressure even during stressful times so that's because I, I want to. I also want to get back to so the original. Oh yeah the original question looks like we're lost but I I want to no well we are lost yeah having two kids so (laughs) so our kids are not they're they're not less than a year apart thank goodness but but they're four and almost two four and a half and almost two stress is like the number one thing with little kids like and there's because you know they're as they come into the world because your, yours are just over two two maybe or almost two um yours apart or ages or age so zion is um 20 months and mm. ada is almost 10 months Oh, those, these are the best ages. Yeah. These are the best. Once they can talk back, it's like, oh my gosh, what are you, like, you're a little me. Ada, you're a little me and all your triggers are my triggers. Ada is in the, we call it the potted plant phase where she just, we put her somewhere and oh. she just stays there and she's and quiet. And they're so cute. And they're, they're so, so cute. cute. <laughs> yeah. It's great. So have you, have you learned sort of ways to, because that's something I think everybody struggles with is, is how to manage you know, good stress and bad stress. Have you just had to figure out ways that you can regulate that by stepping away or meditation or, or what do you do to kind of manage that? Yeah, that's a, a big thing that I've been learning in this season. Um, so I'm very lucky to have an incredible partner who, I mean, takes 50%, sometimes more, you know, we balance sometimes less of um, that's beautiful burden that is caring for your kiddos. And so that is a huge part. And he knows me sometimes better than myself. He can almost tell when I'm having a bad, bad head day, even before I'm consciously aware of it. And so he just steps in really quickly to help out, which is incredible. Um, I also have pushed really hard into taking care of myself and taking care of my body through yoga. And that has been such a life-giving thing through me in this season. Um, Not only are you doing something physical with your body, which I believe that we all need, but you also are working on quieting your mind. Um, So I I really do feel like that has been a way that I've kept myself, um, my stress levels down as much as you can while you have young kids. Yeah, moving the. I'm I'm a firm believer in in moving the body. I think, I mean, it it seems like foreign to people living in 2021, but I it feels like we only stopped like moving 50 years ago. You know, where where jobs switched to tech jobs, or 
I mean, even even back in like the heydays of manufacturing and things like that, they were still on their feet working, right? So, so yeah. Well, I remember. Oh, I was just gonna say, I remember like back when Tommy, Tommy and I first did a podcast together. Like, I don't know, three years ago, the Cheeto Dust podcast. Oh yeah, I've listened to an episode of that. (laughs) (laughs) We're sorry. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's not. It's great. No, Grace, you are uh, you are our classic uh, listener base. They listened to one episode. <laughs> I did only listen to the one. I'm sorry. But uh, we talked about a couple times um, how we could be obsessing about something and we go for a run and absolutely nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. All I did was get a workout in. And that thing that I was obsessing about feels totally different. So... I, I 100% agree on that. And I was curious, you mentioned having, uh, you mentioned Dan, just having a great partner in life. When these surgeries started, when you were 20, did you know Dan yet? How, how long did you know each other? So we did not know each other when I had my first surgery. And then okay. we met between my first surgery and my second And then two years passed before we ever reconnected. And so he came back after my second surgery, before my third. So my last three were for shunts. Um, And we started dating um, probably about a month before my third surgery. At that time, I didn't know. And he um, knew, obviously, about my first two surgeries. I don't think he knew to what extent, um, how bad it was. And that's my fault. That's my doing because I hide, um, for a lot of reasons. I was, you know, when I left for my first surgery, I didn't even tell my roommates. I literally just packed a bag and left for Texas and they were like, Hey, where'd you go? What do you think that was? I want to stop on that for a minute because that's an interesting reaction. Yeah. Um, so for me, I hate, causing other people any kind of inconvenience and I hate causing other people any kind of burden. My biggest fear um, throughout my younger life and even still today but a little bit less I've been working on it is fearing that I am a burden and so Mm. I think I fear that um, if I let people into this space that it would cause them in some way to inconvenience themselves or they would want to send a gift or feel like they needed to come visit or anything like that. And I just, I didn't want to be that. And, um, and I also just, uh, there's something so intrinsic and intimate about pain and suffering, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's very easy to let someone into your joy it's very difficult to let someone into your suffering um, in an authentic way. Like there are ways that you can let people into your suffering. That's really more about you. Um, But in that raw state, it was just, it just felt like too much. And Mm. I felt like I'd rather handle this on my own than extend my suffering to anybody else. And so that was kind of my thing. And also part of it is just like, I am a perfectionist and I want to look okay from the outside. I want to be seen as put together and okay. And, you know, when this thing came about, I was very much not okay. (laughs) Um, So I think that's a big part of it. And with 
Dan, I think, you know, when he came in, part of me was just like hoping it would get better, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you speak it out loud and you make it a big deal, then maybe it will become a big deal. And um, yeah, so about a month into us dating, you know, things start kind of taking a downhill turn and um I you know fly to Texas which is where my neurosurgeon is at that time I was living in Kansas City um hey 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 hey. uh I will tell you (laughs) finding a good neurosurgeon not that easy so once you have one you stick with them which is why I kept yeah you don't you don't want the guy yeah you don't want the guy that uh that tested last in his class or her or her class like they can wield a knife pretty well. Once they're in there, C+. Plus. Pretty well, and C+, plus <laughs> is not good enough. Um, right. My first surgeon was not great. Um, part of the reason I needed the second surgery was because of the first. Wow. And we didn't pick him. It was an emergency situation. So anyway, the last four were by the same um, person, Dr. Don Kim out of Houston, Texas. He's the best if anybody's looking. <laughs> Shout out, Don Kim. Shout out. I think I know what your recommendations at the end of the show will be here today. <laughs> Find a good neurosurgeon. Um, hopefully you don't need one. But uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, going back. Um, and then eventually we'll return to the question of why did you adopt? Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. So, you know, a month into dating, find out we need another, I need another surgery. And at that point I was like, hey, Dan, Look. It's looking like, you know, this is going to be a rough go of it. My first two surgeries were extremely difficult. I was in the hospital for a while. Um, the recovery was really tough. Um, we thought that the next surgery wouldn't be as bad, but it was just a lot. And I was like, we're, we've been dating for a month. Um, basically, I bless and release you. Like, you have no need to stay for this. Um, and he just said, I'm in. I'm all in. And so, you know, after a month, Within a week or two of dating, he flies to Houston, and his first time meeting my family was in the hospital, um, and he stayed with my family while I was in the hospital, and um, that was kind of it for us, and we got engaged after dating for four months, so in between my, so I had another surgery after that, and then we got engaged, and then I had another surgery, so we kind of, we joked that we got married in the worst of times, Um he also had a surgery during that time. He tore his labrum. Um, and uh, so it was his his labrum surgery was a week after my fifth surgery. Man, what a pair. It was, it was, we were, yeah, we were definitely a pair. I had my head shaved in multiple places. Um, you guys have a lot of ice packs laying around the house, a right? Lot a lot of ice of packs, like... a lot of like loopy medicine. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. What a, I mean, what a stud though. So, oh my gosh, uh, yeah. first of all, like, so Tommy, if I'm sure you haven't met Dan, like there's no way, uh, not, but yeah. I mean, what you're not, hearing, there's not, there's not no way, <laughs> like there's not no way. There's a chance. Sure, it, it might chance, but. but So everything that Grace is saying, you're, it sounds like a guy who walked out of a Nicholas Sparks novel. But it, except for the fact that Dan's like one of the manliest guys <laughs> I've ever met. Very. Uh, yeah, high school football coach. Like he's he's probably taller than me. Definitely stronger than me. Uh, uh, you're pretty strong, Dustin. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if he's still been doing it, but I saw some Dan's of those workout strong. videos he used yeah. to post. 
and I know I wasn't there. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's an awesome guy. And I'll, just like a quick aside, so Dan and I hadn't really talked before because this is just funny to me that uh, this was the way. Like I had a first interaction with him. Um. Walking down the road, I think Katie's pregnant at this time with Walter. And so Dan had just gotten back from uh, practice or something like that. Gets out of the car, we start up a small talk. And I go down a typical, like, I don't know, analytical diatribe about the things I'm worried about in my impending fatherhood. And (laughs) did not even blink. Like, was so not... Like, this is a weird conversation to be having two minutes into meeting this guy. I'm sure he loved it. was just like, you know what I've been thinking about is closed source toys. (laughs) It's like, you know, a toy that's like a Captain America doll is a Captain America doll. But like a stick, a rock, those are open source toys. They can be anything. It sparks the (laughs) imagination. He's like giving me all this. I was like, dude, do you have kids? (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So he's he's a really interesting dude. A fun fact about Dan, Dustin, you know this. Um, Dan is the second of 12 children. They wow. are the same parents. There are no twins. Um, anyway, so he's very, very comfortable with kiddos. And That's has impressive. Basically, yeah, he's basically raised um, quite a bit. So when I say I have a great partner when it comes to raising kids, I don't think there is a better partner when it comes to raising kids. Um, well, I'd argue that I've got a pretty great partner. I yeah, mean, you're, you gonna... want some competition on this podcast? I mean, a father partner. <laughs> we can fight about this. <laughs> a father partner, because I get you both off the hook. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, my, there you uh, go. My dad's actually the 11th of 12. No way. Why no is it twin. always 12? It's never 11. It's always it's just, 12. My know. mom is one of 13. Oh, whoa. Okay, so it's not always What are we 12. doing here, guys? Wait, Dustin, your mom is one of 13? <laughs> yeah. Wow. How did I not know that? I don't know. So just, just hardy Midwestern stock. <laughs> yeah, right? That's, yeah. Ours was ours was a good uh, Irish Catholic Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. They, they tobacco farm. The more, the more hands you had, the more tobacco you could farm, so. Yeah, Dan's dad um, grew up Irish Catholic, so yeah, there's something close. there. Irish, yeah. Catholic, slash Midwestern, kind of the dangerous, same. Dangerous combination. Yeah. So you and Dan decide to go all in. Yes. And multiple years later, I assume what we get to is the surgery left you in a place where pregnancy wasn't really something to mess around with. Yeah, so when it came to a point, I think we'd been married for four years, and we were thinking, you know, like, hey, we would start thinking about having a family, and um, the first thing I do before any kind of medical or big life thing is talk to my neurologist. Um, So, you know, I fly to Texas, I'm talking to her, and then she's like, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. Um, you know, so much of your body changes during pregnancy. And one of those things is the viscosity of your CSF, which is what the fluid is that might shunt strain. Um, so the likelihood of you needing a surgery, um, or your shunt clogging during pregnancy, which has actually happened before to me. And I needed another surgery to remedy that, um, is high, which is dangerous for both you and baby. And so she said, you know, I'm not saying no, um, 
but I don't think it's a good idea. And she was a little bit more firm than I'm being in this delivery. Right. Um, and I talked to my neurosurgeon, mm. Dr. Don Kim, whoop, whoop. Um, shut up. Shut up. And he, he basically said the same thing, except more, more stern. Cause I'm, you know, his piece of art to him and he's like, don't mess it up. Um, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, that kind of happened. And, um, I had always wanted to adopt and Dan and I had talked about adopting later in life after we had had biological kids and, um, you know, my heart turned toward adoption pretty quickly at that moment. And Dan wasn't quite there yet. Um, he, I think in his mind, and we've processed this later, he felt like if we adopted, that meant we were giving up on my healing. And um, anyway, a long story short, he goes to China for a couple months for a work thing. And he his heart turns. We, as, as we were apart, we decided that we were going to pray separately and not talk to each other about it. And then at the end of the summer, we were going to come back and like talk about where we felt like we were. And he mm. came back and he was maybe even more like forward towards adoption than I was, um, which is typical Dan fashion. Um, <laughs> says the man who, you know, ado- got engaged after four months, um, which to me was crazy, but made sense. So that seems to work. Yes, it's yeah. working. Um, yeah, we're pretty happy. But uh yeah, so that's that's kind of what brought us um, to the place of deciding to take the next step towards adoption. Um, and, you know, I don't – there are a lot of reasons that people come to, towards adoption, but um, for us, I think deciding that this was our first choice in this situation and we weren't coming as a last resort um, was something that also – was really beautiful out of this, um, taking something that's really difficult and deciding like, Hey, I'm going to make something really beautiful out of that. Um, I had never, I had never thought about that because it does. It, and there's no, there's no, I guess maybe, well, I won't say this. There's no bad reason to adopt, but you know, there is, there's not many bad reasons to adopt, but it does sometimes feel like people say, well, if, you know, if all else fails, like, you can, you know, adoption, there's many kids and, and it is pretty, I never, I had never thought about it the other way around. Like this is our first choice to do this. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, now after, you know, having Zion and Ada, um, it's always really hard to hear women, um, or men, men and women kind of say that as like a last mm-hmm. resort as like, mm-hmm. this is, this is the worst case scenario, but it, it'll get the job done. Yeah. You sort of settled, mm-hmm. right? We settled on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you know, some people might step into adoption out of that space, but I believe that once they have adopted, I think they don't feel that way anymore. Sure. Um, but yeah, it really does take stepping because it's, it is um, not the natural way, right? Like in a perfect world, adoption does not exist. But I believe that adoption is more beautiful than something that a perfect world unbroken could have given us. I like that. Yeah, I've Katie and I have had conversations in the past and this it's a theme that can run through a lot of different veins of life which is is something better if it's perfect or redeemed. Right? And you know, we we drew that a little bit from uh the Christian faith, but I think it it relates to a lot of stuff. And you you hear people talk about it in all sorts of walks. Uh Tommy and I were talking about a CrossFit guy, Matt Frazier, last weekend, or last week. 
And he, every time he talks about his story to being like great at his sport, he starts off with the fact that I got second twice and I failed at Olympic lifting. Like he needed all the stumbling blocks to be proud of this place he achieved. And I think that that's a pretty common human story. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So that's really cool to hear. I'm a a phrase that kind of came to me. I don't know if it came to me. I probably heard it somewhere, but like during my surgeries, um, was just that the most beautiful things in life are more beautiful for once having been broken. Mm. And that has stuck with me for a very long time. And I really believe that. And I think I spent, you know, the first 20 years of my life wanting to appear unbroken. And Mm. I have been just totally shifted on that. And I now believe that to show you my brokenness and to show you what has been done because of that is more important. And it's also more human because none of us are not broken. And what we do with that brokenness is ultimately the most beautiful thing. And I want to, because I wrote this down when you were talking about before about your roommates and not wanting to share, uh, not wanting to be a burden. And Tommy, you know what it made me think of is the beautiful mess effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it came from a podcast that you directed me towards, Tommy. Um, Yep. He, He might pop back up in the recommendations this week. (laughs) <laughs> Jamil Zakai, yeah. Jamil Can I get Zakai. a sneak peek? Who is it? What is it? Yeah, it's it's a it's a writer. Uh, I guess he's, he's he's a psychologist too. Jamil Zakai, and he wrote a book called "The War for Kindness," which I have not read yet. Uh, but he was on the um, Armchair Expert podcast. Oh with yeah, Dak Shepard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, and he, he the whole conversation was about empathy and um. Ultimately, what he what he comes to is this: uh, the beautiful mess effect is essentially, um, you know, we um, and Dusty. I might butcher this as I'm as I'm laying it out, but but basically, we perceive our vulnerabilities and our brokenness to be burdensome to other people, but we perceive their brokenness and their vulnerability and willingness to open up to us as a sign that they like us, and that and that and that they're you know we're useful and and so forth. And so, you know, I think what I always glean from that is, is, uh, you know, it's the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you, as you've done to yourself. And, uh, but, but we also also forget to treat ourselves like the people that we are treating other people. You know what I mean? Take care of yourself. Like you were someone you're responsible for taking care of is kind of what I always come back to. So. And marriage has been such an interesting thing in that respect and and a healing thing for me with this idea of being a burden, because one thing that Dan always says to me and I always say to him if I'm struggling to like help him, let him take part of my burden, he would say, what if the role was reversed? If I had this thing, would you want to help me carry it? Or would you feel a burden? And I'm like, every single time, like, no, 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 I would be there hands down, like, just give it to me. And that's really helpful to almost have a perspective shift of saying, hey, like, how would Dan feel in this situation? Um, and vice versa. And so to be able to just shift it a little bit um, is really helpful for me to constantly remind myself, hey, stop hiding, stop trying to be perfect, um, be who you are and, you know, let, let people love you, which is hard to do sometimes. 
It's very hard to do sometimes. Um, so I, I don't know that we've uh, said it directly at this point in the podcast, but uh, both of your children are black. They are, yes. And getting into the adoptive process, was it intentional to adopt minorities or were you just kind of open to let's see where the process takes us? Yeah. Um, when we stepped into that space, um, there's a really scary form you fill out when you're in the adoption process, which basically like, what are you open to? Which feels really heavy and weird. So you're talking about like, you know, what ethnicities are you open to? Are you open to a child with special needs? Kind of all of these things. Um, are you open to an open adoption or do you only want to close? All these things. And so when Dana and I sat down to fill out this form, um, we looked at the um, ethnicity section and we said, all right, like, what do we envision? What do we feel like we are called to? And um, when we were talking about kind of the different ethnicities that were listed, we talked about um, what does it look like to raise a child that is from a different culture and background than you? And for us, what we decided was really important that is that we would make sure that we have a life that not only asks for diversity, but asks for inclusion, and that we would give that child access to their culture just as much as ours because we don't want to take them out of their culture and we want to give them, um, we want to give honor to who they are and how they were made. And so looking at that list, you know, we, we said that we were open to anything. Um, however, we also, when we were talking to our adoption agency, we said, we feel that, you know, we feel that we could give a black child or a child of a Hispanic um, background access to that culture the best um, because mm -hmm. of just different um, relationships that we have and just accessibility to those things. And so we didn't step in saying like, hey, we want to adopt a black child. If someone does step into that and says, hey, I want to adopt a black child, I think they should really step back and question why they're doing that. Is it a savior mentality? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. But, you know, that's kind of what led us into that space. And ironically, or not ironically, because I believe this was very um, purposed, was that um, when we moved to Raleigh, we used to live in Durham. When we moved to Raleigh, we, Dan and I were looking um, around for churches. Dan and I are both um, of the Christian faith. And we ended up deciding to go to a church that's predominantly black. And that wasn't because, you know, we wanted to do this as a cool thing. It was because we just felt that the presence of God was strongest there. And um, so a year before we got into the adoption process, we stepped into a um, community in which we were the minority and it happened to be black. And so we felt that if we were going to adopt a child of a different race, it made the most sense for that child to be black. And it just so happened that that's what we got matched with. Um, so that's kind of... Those are really tough decisions that you never think you have, like that you just don't think about, right? Like 
you know, we, you know, our, our kids are, were, were going to be whatever they were going to be. We didn't really have much choice. They were just going to come out what they were going to look like and, and be like and act, you know, but when they, when they start, what you said is very true. Like, is there a savior mentality? Like I'm going to go rescue these, these kids from wherever, like, uh, are, are you coming to these decisions pure and true and authentic or are you coming them coming at them from a place of, you know, somewhat self-aggrandizing? Well, and that's I a, never thought about that. Well, that's a good a question I had was I'm sure once once you realized Zion was on the way and OK, I'm going to be a mother of. Uh, of a black boy and I'm going to have this transracial family. I'm sure you had expectations and you, you bring in your two decades plus of life experience. How has, I guess first, what were those expectations if you could even recall and how has the reality been different? Oh, um, Gosh, you know, I think when I think about that time after we matched, so the verbiage, the language that they use in the adoption world, when you have um, connected with a, a potential, a future child in, in that child's birth mother's matching. So when we matched with Zion's birth mother um, and we, you know, realized that we were going to have a black son, I, th- I don't even really remember having expectations other than recognizing that, like, our life is going to need to change. Mm. Um, we need to change our inputs. That was one thing I remember very strongly of saying, like, looking at, looking at our bookshelf and saying, how many of these authors are white? Probably all of them. And then looking at, um, you know, like, what movies are we watching? Are they being directed by white directors or black directors, probably almost exclusively white directors. And so Mm. just thinking about um, our future and even imagining something we do a lot is family dance parties when we're cleaning up the kitchen after (laughs) dinner. And so just imagining, all right, what's our family dance party going to be looking like? What is the music we're listening to? And so I think that was an expectation. That's kind of a weird way of saying it, but that was an expectation um, I expected life to change and it has, um, in a really, really great way. Um, hard way. I really feel like we, we had to like fast track, um, a lot of things, but, um, yeah. And I think, um, I expected to have hard conversations with certain people. Um, yeah. And I have had that. I expected mm-hmm. to have um, strangers say inappropriate things, and that has happened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of a, a, a strange, ex- it's kind of a strange way of saying that, but that's something that kind of sticks out um, to how I was feeling during that season of matching um, and how that's lined up to um, our life now. Interesting. I love the changing your inputs, because I think that's something we tend, I shouldn't say we, I, my own experience, tend to underrate the impact of context on formulating our personality. We think our personality is ours, but it's just, it just kind of happens, right? I was, uh, uh, 
actually former guest of the show, Jeremy Moeller. Shout out Jeremy Moeller. He, He'll uh, be back. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me a podcast on, uh, it was an editor just talking about, you know, the intuitive uh, approach to editing a book or a piece of writing and because he knows I'm interested in that. And, you know, what a thoughtful thing to do. Hey, thought you might be interested in this. <laughs> And she gets to the latter half of, uh, you know, the interview in this podcast, and she's been in the publishing business for, you know, almost 30 years. And she says only in the last few years uh, did she become aware of something in her own industry, which is if a romance novel had a uh, black character on the cover of the book it was most likely going to be filed in a library or a bookstore under uh, African-American interests. Yeah. And so for exa- so she said, like, I have, like, an app that feeds me reading recommendations, and so I changed one of the inputs to African-American interests. And the type of books she got, like, Beloved, right? Like, Toni yeah. Morrison. Like, yep. There was there was a bunch of stuff that just started coming in. She was like, "Oh my gosh, I had no idea." And I think as the end users of culture, it is very easy to think that we don't have much of a responsibility to all that. But that's kind of that's kind of I, I don't want to say it's the most important responsibility, but it's right up there because it shapes your identity. It's important. When we're talking about kind of the the fabric of our of our world and of our communities and of our families and of our nation, you know, there's so many big issues regarding race that we're dealing with. One of the big things that we can do is change our inputs. And that starts really, really young. I'm reading a book right now called um, all the lies, I think it's all the lies my teacher told me or something like that. And it's basically going back. So basically this this author took, I think like 11 or 12 history books and he examined the history that was presented in those books. And just mind-blowing um, simplification of certain things or just totally overlooking entire categories of history. And so... Yeah, just changing our inputs. And when this is being taught to us as this is our history and there's a black child in that class and they're like, well, that's not my, you know, that's not all my history, you Mm -hmm. know, all of these things. And so um, changing our inputs has been I I was talking to some friends about about that exact thing and it's like, you know, growing up, we were taught that, you know, just something is basic and and we'll all know what this is, the three-fifths compromise. Yes. Right? We're taught, like... Like our input for that is what a brilliant idea. What, what a game changing way. And it's like, but that's, but that, and then it's like, that's it. And then you move on to the next thing, right? Then, then it's like, then it's this, you know, the, the, whatever. And, I feel, and, uh, I feel like I might be foolish here. The three fifths compromise. I don't think you I don't, know so, what that is. So basically the uh, back and, and this might've been pre civil war. Um, the Southern States wanted I to think count. It was- Post-Civil War. Was it post-Civil War? It was post-Civil yeah. War, I'm pretty okay. sure. See, so, so here's my ignorance Which is coming worse. out. Shining, sh- shining through on my on our own podcast. So basically, the the southern states wanted to uh, count slaves as full people because they had hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And that would increase their representation in Congress. And the North said, you can't count them. They're property, right? 
that here we go. Like, this is ridiculous that we're even it, it, it's ridiculous to me as I say it out loud that it's even just yeah. thought of as like a this is a great idea. And so the compromise was you take all of the slaves and you count them as three fifths of a person. And that gives you equal representation in in Congress. I'm trying that to remember, is... was it even when they were enslaved? I think I could totally be wrong here, but I think it was actually after they were freed. Let's see I, here. Mate, that could be totally wrong. Somebody look that up. Well, we need a Jamie, fact checker. Fact Jamie, check us. Jamie, like this is Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. Jamie, look that up <laughs> no. um, it's, a, it's a problem with podcasts on budget. Yes, something something that, since that was in the three-fifths compromise was in 1787, so that would have been pre- Oh, uh, you're War. right. I'm well so wrong. War. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. You'll get used to it. I'm, I'm totally kidding. You need to edit this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll edit this part Make out. Make me look perfect. What? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to ask you, so this is something you know, from a personal standpoint that I, I've had to do a lot of reconciling in the last year um, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the first time it came around in what, maybe 20... Uh, what was the, I forget the first time it came around as a big movement, but I sort of brushed it under the rug. I did a lot of ex, you know explaining myself away from it. It really hit me this year, and maybe it's because I'm at a at a different point in my life. I've done a lot more soul searching, um, reconciling my past, and you know the thi- the things that we were taught in school and so forth. And so I'm still at a phase of like, I just need to listen um, because I know what the experience is like being a white person in America. Um, I recognize that there's privilege that comes to that, but that's, to me, that's not enough. It's, it's a start, but also I need to like, if an entire population of people is screaming out, we don't feel like we're being treated equally. Maybe we should all listen to them and and try to understand that. So, and where where I'm getting to is I'm still at this point of like, I'm just trying to just, I'm, I'm, I'm increasing my inputs and that's from people and podcasts and I'm not a great reader. I, I'm, I'm like three books a year. So, but, but how, how has this year especially, you know, impacted you and, and what maybe feedback would you want to share about that? Cause I'd imagine it's dramatically different being a parent of two black children, as opposed to just a, you know, a married white family. Absolutely. Gosh. Um, yeah, the last two years have, um, really transformed the lens through which I see the world. And I think you mentioned something a little bit about this, but, um, you know, in the past, if things like this happened, um, we, as the majority, had the privilege of opting out because it didn't personally affect me or the majority of my community and family, or if not all of my community and family, then, like, is it really happening? Kind of like if a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears it type situation. Um, And the first time I held Zion in my arms, I just feel like that privilege of opting in was totally shattered because what affects your children, no matter if they came from your body or not, just, yeah, I mean, it just affects you in such massive ways. And so something that I was talking to Dan about earlier today was that – thinking about, you know, if your son and daughter both have peanut allergies, you look at the world differently. You are looking out and seeing things that could cause them harm. When they are with some a new friend, you make sure 
that that friend and that, you know, adult, whoever's with them is not going to feed them peanuts, things like that. And in the same way, if you have a son and a daughter who um, are black, you are looking at the world differently. You are looking at the world for potential things that could cause them harm. And you're also looking at your community and you're saying, hey, is this person going to spread peanuts all over my son who has a peanut allergy? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when I'm watching and experiencing and talking to my black brothers and sisters who are telling me their stories, I'm hearing it, yes, as their stories, but I'm also hearing it as Zion and Ada's story. And mm-hmm. when I'm watching George Floyd die, I'm seeing Zion die and you know as young kids people love black babies like they and this is horrible and feels so gross to say but like they think they're so cute and they just love to touch their hair and all these things but somewhere along the way that cute adorable thing that to some people they view as a commodity becomes dangerous and at Mm -hmm. what point does that happen at what point does my son who is you know not even two years old who's so cute and people love to hold him and they love to believe in his future at what point does he become a threat and at what point is his life in danger because of the way he looks and so I think when you I, I really believe that loving somebody who looks different than you, who has a different experience than you, is what it takes for someone's mind to be changed around these issues. Um, I'm not saying that it can't happen any other way, and I'm not saying that people who do love others that look differently than them can also still have a closed mind, but um, there's something about being in close relationship and loving someone who is who's has the potential to truly suffer and you know that's going to happen um for you to just look at what's happening and say i'm gonna step back and i'm gonna listen and that was another in addition to the inputs um thing that we talked about earlier something that dan and i decided when we had matched was that we are going to take a season of listening which includes inputs right like we were reading a lot of books and we were listening to a lot of podcasts, um, but just stepping into the space and saying, I'm going to listen, to have the humility um, to say, my voice doesn't matter right now. And before I speak about something I don't know, I'm going to listen. And so I think the last year has made me realize how horribly ignorant I have been in my life, um, mm-hmm. how much I have chosen to stay silent because I was more afraid to step into the space in which I might have to confront something that is ugly or in which I might have to confront myself and say, hey, the way that I've been living my life, my view of the world is faulty. Um yeah, and so it, yeah, and have you ever had any pushback? Because you know, you see, you you celebrate black culture and black artists, and in some walks of life, people will then say, "Well, you're you're this or you're that." You know, you're you're taking away, and it's like, 
yeah, it, it becomes, you know, and what, what you're saying is it's not, you know, the, the word ignorant can kind of have a negative connotation, but it's not, but it's not, it's not willful. It's just in a lot of cases, it's just, you don't know any better. <laughs> you don't, you know, you don't know to do better. And I think what I heard you say is kind of a thread throughout this whole conversation is it, it forces the empathy meter up a level because you can't, you can't take anything for granted. You know, if, if, if Dusty's explaining an experience that he had to me, you know, uh, at a, at a, at a restaurant, now part of me can just say, can, can block out half of what he's saying. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've been there and I know this and that, but I've never been there as a black person. And so therefore I really have to ratchet up the empathy to understand that viewpoint. Uh, I, I have a friend that told me he's, he's been in places where he's, he's had to say, am I acting too black? And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Cause I'm like, I've never in my life had that thought, you know? So thank you for sharing I, that. Yeah. I, true to the podcast name, I'm going to wander around this thought. Uh, because I've I've been thinking about this similarly with Winnie just being born and uh, Kamala Harris becoming vice president, and similarly, I never really cared. One, I didn't care that much about politics, but I never really cared if we had like a female in the White House. Uh, and now it just seems so obvious that seeing that reflection in reality is crucial to showing that the system has a path for you, that the system doesn't ignore you. It couldn't seem more obvious that the thing you said about the peanuts and a peanut allergy, it's like, yeah, the light, the switch was flipped. And I feel silly for not having that very obvious opinion prior. But I think the thing about inputs and it's also incumbent on all of us in the way we have conversations with everybody. You know, all you have is your personal sphere of influence. What we reflect in conversations and art and politics, uh, that stuff does matter. And because every, I've, I've recently had this realization about art, but it's just kind of like, what do you see in the world? And everything you see in the world is really like a potential life path for you. Like humans and the human mind is really nothing more than a comparison engine. And you see something, you compare it to what you have and you do, and you either discard it as noise or you add it as input for potential. And I think when you never see the input option for your potential, it has to be devastating. And I I can only loosely tie it to things because, you know, it's it's kind of the thing Tommy and I have talked about a bunch. Like if you just like pull like the, the slot on what identity option gives you the most potential reflected in the world, like I got it. Like this in in Western American society, like this is it. I'm a tall, blue-eyed white man. If I had better hair, the sky's the limit. <laughs> and I think that uh, 
you know, when I started doing a bunch of group therapy after, after chemo and like really trying to get my body back and my, my drinking under control and everything that was going on with me years ago, uh, I would sit in these group therapy classes and inevitably you come around to this, like, what's the point? Like, what am I, why am I working so hard? And I didn't really know what I was talking about at the time. Um, but I would say something to the effect of, I don't really know what the point of life is, but I know that the work of life has something to do with empathy. And when I look at everything that makes people happy, it has something to do with community. And I don't think you can have those things without each individual making the conscious effort to to broaden the tent, you know? Uh, to be vulnerable, to let other people in, to admit your shortcomings, and to realize that other people have their own beautiful mess in need of redemption, right? So I guess I, I bring all that around to say... Uh, and I probably should have put this right at the top, Grace. Like, I think one of the primary reasons I wanted you on is because I think what you and Dan are doing and the intentionality with which you're building your family is, to me, inspirational. And I love hearing about it. Um, before I pivot, because I do want to talk about the work portion of this, is there anything else that you would advise, you know, people in me and Tommy's situation who are wanting to broaden our inputs and, you know, we don't have the immediate proximity of a child, but I don't know, suggestions for things that would make us uh, better, better brothers and sisters in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it starts with inputs. For so many people, including us, changing your inputs felt safer. It felt less scary. And so I think when you change what you're reading, who you're following on Instagram, what podcast you're listening to, in addition to, looks like we're lost. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, when you change the leadership that you're sitting underneath, whether that's a pastor or whatnot, um, I think that begins to tell the story that is something that you're missing. And when you start listening to that story, then your empathy steps up and mm. your love steps up and your ability to see that, like, hey, you're, you're also a human. I'm a mm. human. Um, because I think a lot of people... It's scary to step into a space. We have the privilege that the majority of spaces that we step into in this world, we are the majority. Um, and it is really difficult for people like us to step into a space where we're not. And so I think that is a, a really, a really great first step um, to that. And then I think once you, you hear stories, stories are so powerful and transformative once you listen to these things, I think it's pretty natural to want to build relationships with people that look differently th than you. Um, 
And once you have those inputs that show us that we aren't different, our, our backgrounds, our experiences are, can often be vastly different. But at the core level in our essence, we are people and um, we are valuable and we are worth something. Um, I think that makes the net the natural next step is loving people that look differently than you. And when you love people that look differently than you, I think worlds change. And so I mm. think, um, you know, I think we've covered it a lot, but changing your inputs, I think is huge. Yeah. And then when you change your inputs, your heart changes. And when your heart changes, you step into spaces that you never thought you would. And when you do that, I think change can happen. And so um, I think that makes us better at loving our neighbor, whatever they look like. Well, I heard this and I have, I hope people who know me can see that I'm different and I hope better than like uh, a few years back. But I heard somebody say, when you know better, you do better. And like I, I clung to that phrase and just tried to like fire hose of information and have been doing that for a couple years now. Uh, and I, I, I think you're right. Like I didn't really have to try that. I don't know. I've, I've, there's also been some effort, but yeah, I didn't, sure. I didn't feel like I had to try that hard once I was getting a bunch of different input. Like I felt motivated to do certain things, to reach out to certain people and, uh, and learn and grow. No. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that's a great summary. Yeah. Our input uh, changes our output. Like easy as that. Like that's it. Yeah. Tattoo that on my butt cheeks, Tommy. <laughs> you put that a, on youtube or something i don't have a steady hand <laughs> so uh speaking of design work <laughs> <laughs> so you started uh marrow design i guess the website went live in april yes and last april yeah given, given everything we have just been talking about that is a nutso time for you and your your life as a mother and trying to boot up so much information and I guess one yeah how how did you do it uh how has it been going like give us let me back up what is marrow design what is the problem it is trying to solve in the world and shout out the website too and shout out the website yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no there's no such thing as a shameless plug on this podcast. Plug it in. Um, okay, so marrowdesign.com, easy as that. Marrow like bone marrow. We talked about it a little bit earlier with Dusty. Um, <laughs> I'll kind of go in a little bit of why I named it Marrow Design because I think it really ties into the problem that um, is being solved and also just why I care. So... Um, I work in the branding space. My um, very first job out of design school was working for um, a group in Kansas City that branded restaurants. And that's kind of where I fell in love with branding because it's basically creating and fostering a space um, for people to step into. And so- Like a community? Like a community. 
Nice. Yeah, tie it back in. Um, so I, you know, we talked a little bit after my surgeries, I ended up having to um, step away from work for a little bit. Um, I then worked at a marketing for nonprofit agency for a little bit. Um, and then part-time, I stair-stepped into full, full-time business, which I also very much recommend for anyone wanting to start a business. And, um, you know, once I left my part-time job to pursue um, doing it on my own full-time, I did it under Grace Casey Creative for years and years. And then um, I was doing a lot of different kinds of things when I was working, you know, under my name. I did a lot of branding, um, which is so much bigger than a logo. Let me start with that. Um, A brand (laughs) is how your audience or a person feels about your company or your organization. That's a brand. So when we talk about branding, we're talking about crafting all the different elements of what your, what your output is as a company to help tell your story, tell a right mess, tell the right message to the right people. And so, um, I decided that I wanted to, shift and do only branding work. This is the work that I wake up for. This is my, you know, part of my flywheel, what I can get on and it will just continue and continue because I love it so much. And um, so when I, when I thought about naming the business, um, I played around with a lot of ideas. Dan and I love the American Southwest. So I was kind of, you know, thrown around something along that line. Um, and then I just thought about how do I approach branding? And for me, before I start the branding process, um, I do this workbook with my clients in which I ask a lot of like really intimate and deep questions about what matters to you, what are your values, what's your mission, when will your work in the world be complete, Um, a lot of these things. And the reason I ask those questions is I'm trying to get to the core who are you at your basis level when all these things that we put on for the world are taken away? What do you get up for in the morning? Who are you in the marrow of your being? And your marrow is this hidden thing, right? Like it's inside your bones. And my goal in the branding process is to discover what that thing is and then make it visible for the world so that they can truly see who you are and it's pretty likely that they're going to recognize and connect with that because it's real and it's raw um, and it's true. So that's kind of where the name Marrow Design came from. Um, It's, you know, that's at the core of my process and um, what really matters to me. And if I feel like I've gotten to that, that thing, that essence, that marrow, um, I, I really feel like, the rest of the work is easy and fun because I just feel like you're working off something that's, um, yeah, that's so intrinsic. And so, um, gosh, yeah. So the pandemic hit right in, um, well, I want to pause there because that was an incredible pitch. (laughs) Yeah. Like I feel, I feel like I didn't put enough thought into this podcast. No, 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 no. No, that's not true. We're all um, bringing like, something different. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking um, 
I don't have any brand to put out there. And also, <laughs> uh, I've never thought about a flywheel. It's like that wheel back there, the Peloton is like the only wheel. Like that's <laughs> yeah, man, a little Jim Collins action. Yeah. Yes. Clock in. Uh, oh, man. Well, no, I, I think that... I'm a nerd when it comes to this kind of thing. So I think about it. I'm like sitting there in bed and I'm like, did I feed Zion? Yes. Okay. What's branding? <laughs> I'm just yeah. like pinballing. Well, I my love it because well, I was going to say, my, I was gonna say my, my, my wife's the same way. So she, she runs her own uh, hair salon business and it just, just loves it, loves it. I mean, even on her days off, she goes and does hair at people's houses. Um, and so, uh, so I get it. It's, it's, it's a passion and it's, and it's also a career and it's, uh, it's really cool when those two intersect. Well, the, uh, and this is a good a good place to pivot. I guess first and foremost, I'd say, I feel like if you're going to talk to somebody about brand design, and I'm sure you thought this, like you got to have your own brand down pat, right? Like, yeah. and you know it. Yeah. I think, you know, just the fact that like the name shows it's bone deep is fantastic. Uh, I think that's part of why it has me like pumped up is everybody wants to feel that way about the thing they're doing. Uh, and, like that makes me want to pivot to an idea you shared with us, um, which is the importance of play. And I can only imagine that you're trying to bring a lot of the concept of play into your work because you want, you, you hope that your clients feel that same way about their brand, right? The, do something you love, you never work a day in your life type of thing. So instead of, uh, instead of talking about this as work, I'd rather talk about it as play and ask you, what does the concept of play mean to you? And how is that pivotal in the way you go about your day? You know, not just in work, like I'm sure it permeates your life. Yeah, it's been something... Um that I've thought a lot about, especially in the last year. So, um, I was listening to another podcast, um, by a creative entrepreneur. Sorry. Um, (laughs) but I'm also, I'm a mom. So like I'm constantly doing things and I listen to a lot of podcasts. So don't worry. Doesn't mean I don't listen to you guys. Um, but I was listening to another podcast that was talking about, um, anyway, it's for creative entrepreneurs and he was talking, he's an illustrator and he was talking about, um, what it's like to get into your flow state, which is that it's kind of like a time warp thing when you're working and you're doing something you love and time becomes this other thing and you're just totally in the work. And he was talking about that as play and he was about what it, what it's like to bring play into your work. When he brought play into his work, he created his best work. And, um, so I've thought a lot about this and I definitely know what that feels like to be sitting down on your computer, sketching or whatever, and you lose all, all sense of time and you're just in it and you don't care how long it takes and you're having so much fun. And then you look up and you're hungry and you have to go to the bathroom and there's maybe a kid crying anyway. Um, that's the best. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, so that got me thinking a lot about play and um, also since taking that idea of play outside of work, um, I care a lot about um, being physically healthy 
I feel my brain feels better when I'm physically healthy. Um, I growing up, I tumbled and did acro and did cheer. I cheered in college for a little bit before the head stuff got in the way. Um, and when I was doing those things, I was getting a good workout. I was treating my body right, but it didn't feel like work. It was play. And since that time, I've lost that. Like I was going pre-COVID, I would, you know, go to the YMCA and I would run on the treadmill for a little bit and I would, you know, do this, that, and the other, but it felt like a burden and it didn't feel fun and I dreaded it and I didn't want to do it. And it, yes, it kept me in good shape or at least closer to the shape I wanted to be in, but it just, it, it, it didn't, I didn't want it to be that hard. And so I, I remembered back to tumbling. I remember back doing the acro stuff and just feeling like it was so much fun and I couldn't get enough of it. And so I thought, how can I bring that back? Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm in my thirties now and I know that I'm supposed to be serious and I'm not supposed to play, but I just don't buy it. Like, I just think that we need to find ways to bring play back into our life. And so, um, I had met this girl, shout out Lauren Olivia, um, who taught yoga. Um, I, I think a friend of mine brought me to a class. I had never really done yoga and she brought me to Lauren's class and, um, Lauren was having so much fun and she made it fun for me and I got a great workout, but I wanted more and I was exhausted, but I wanted more. And so that was the first time that I like felt play that was just for me that was active rest. And so I just kept wanting more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And Lauren ended up leaving that studio and I followed her like a crazy lady, Um, (laughs) you know, anyway. And so she introduced me to handstands, um, the the practice of inversions. And I had done them um, in athletics, um, but not in the way she was teaching it, in this slow, intentional get get in tune with your body and your mind kind of way and since my surgeries I hadn't inverted like that was a absolutely no way type thing like even doing a downward dog in yoga for anyone who you know doesn't know about that that's basically where your hands are on the ground your feet are on the ground you're kind of in an inverted v and um even that was kind of hard but um Lauren kind of showed me how to sink my breath to my body and move really, really slowly. And that allowed um, my brain not to pound, um, which allowed me to do the things that I never in my life thought I'd do again. And so in some ways it felt like, you know, every time I worked on handstands or inversions, it felt like this joy of like, I never thought I'd do this again. And here I am. Um, doing it and so that 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 freedom that release of like a kid Mm. and that kind of ignited this desire for play in my life and so um you know as a parent both of you two know it's hard to find time for yourself um to play and you give so much of your life to these little beings that you're responsible for. And so, um, but I recognized that when I found time for play, I was a better mom to them. And when I found time for play for me, I designed better. Like it it felt Mm. like those two things didn't 
like link, but they do because we're whole beings. As much as we want to compartmentalize, as much as we want to mind vice, that's not how it works. Like we are full beings. And so, you know, you, you change, you start waking up early and doing it before they wake up. And, um, and when it's play, you want to find time. Like it's so much fun. Mm. Yeah. It's funny you say that Annie's on me all the time about, you know, getting dinner with my friends and I, I have this guilt factor where I'm like, well, if I do that, I'm I'm not spending time with the kids, and I'm not spending time with you, with, you know, with with you, Annie. And she's like, she's like, but you're you it it increases your mood, it improves your mood, um, and it's just time where you don't have to be on. Um, you know, same thing with with like um, you know CrossFit workouts. I find the same thing that uh, that replicates like playing baseball growing up. Like I could, I could hit off of a tee a thousand times a day, you know, hitting, hitting certain benchmarks and doing things that you never thought you could do makes it, even though it's, there's some suffering yeah. and it's like, people are like, Oh, you know, well, why would you ever, you know, why would you put yourself through that kind of thing? It, it, it's, it is addicting and, and it, and you're right. It, it, it shows you, I think where the, you know, the, the body takes the mind to a new place this intentional suffering. That's, we've talked about this, you know, letting, mm-hmm. I think you, you had a little um, soliloquy about it recently on your, on your Instagram about intentional suffering, stretching the mind, stretching the body. And so, yeah. Well, well to that point, uh, because I come from a very, you know, it, first of all, goal oriented. Right. And, uh, I've talked about my older brother on here a couple of times and how like, he's always amazed me with his ability to just like, like the mind vice is very real for him, Grace. Like my older brother, he's if he decides he wants to do something, he can just focus on it and eventually do it. Yeah. And it gave me this idea that like discipline was just like a muscle I could build and flex on anything. And while there is some truth to that, I think it, got me away from the play aspect. So, you know, I got very aggro about everything, like very goal-oriented. And what I found, so what I've what I've primarily changed in the last few years, I got super goal-oriented after, uh, after cancer, and like I'm going to do all these things, and I'm just going to like rip it. I'm going to knock it out. And what I've what I kind of found, and this will go to something else I want to talk to you about, is you can't, I think we overrate what we can do in like a month or six months, and we really probably underrate what, what we, we can, can do, do in day. five years, right? Oh, like, never mind. Let's no, go in the I'm, other I'm direction. Going, other way. <laughs> I'm going the other way. Like, And so it takes a lot of time to build up to these big things we want to do. And if I just try to like, I'm going to eat perfect for a year like i'm gonna drive myself insane it's not fun i need to i need to right it's not sustainable i need to enjoy the food i need to enjoy like my workouts so one thing i've been doing recently uh and this kind of puts it into a nutshell is i saw something and tommy you may have sent it to me i don't know where all these things come from probably but (laughs) but it was it was talking about uh, I think it was exercise oriented, but it was 
basically saying on your splits when you're wanting to do something at a peak level, you need to practice 50% of the time, execute 40% of the time, and perform 10%. And when the topic of play came up, I just thought, drop that practice and it should just be pure play 50% of the time. And like when I'm writing, first drafts are pure play. I've given myself that that freedom. Like any weird idea, any like, oh, I probably shouldn't be writing that. That's like, I'd be embarrassed if somebody read that. Like put it in there. Just it's yours. And then I come back and I edit, 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 right? And that's the 40% of execution. And then eventually something will go out to the world. And that interaction between the world and what I've written, like that's the last 10%. And that and, play is your, or, yeah, that play is your essence, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're getting to, you're starting with your essence and then you're bringing strategy and insight into those things to package it in a way that communicates what you want to communicate. Exactly. Exactly. And I've found that I can apply this principle to a lot of things, right? Like I'll, right now I'll do a Peloton class once a week and it'll be like my benchmark. And I think of that class as like time to perform. And then like my, my workouts, I'll do like three workouts just for fun, three workouts in the week that I'm like, okay, I've got to hit these intervals at a certain pace. I've got my, my measures. And so far, like the performance day at the end of the week has just been better and better and better and better. And I'm not getting burnt out because I don't go into every day thinking like, I've got to crush myself again. Like some of those days, I'd, I'd be embarrassed for people to see my output. It's like, Dust, did you do anything? It's like, yeah, I, I watched a Martin Scorsese movie and I pedaled for 45 minutes. That's great. <laughs> So I just I think that's an awesome approach that is so easy to forget. Uh, and it's so much more I, fun. Yeah. yeah. Way better. Way better. So I we're getting to that point where uh, Tommy and I start to get a little heavy-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to uh, start steering towards um, maybe a few quick hit questions that are, you know, kind of like the... You know, if uh, you were a if you were a road sign, what what would it say? Like the, the dumb stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, but before that, there was one last thing. Um, you know, Marrow Design is, even though you've been a designer for a long time and you've done a lot of work, Marrow Design is relatively young, and you know, even though two years is a long time. You know, it's it's like you're in the, the first lap of your time as a parent. What, uh, when you think about these long endeavors, you know, you talk about play and it's like, because these are things I want to do for the rest of my life. What is the importance of taking a, a long game view to these endeavors? I guess, does it make sense what I'm saying? You know that you're going to have to do these things for a long time. Where do you find the motivation, the inspiration? Where do you want to go with them? 
And is that maybe even defeating to think about or is it helpful? No, I think it's, I think it's essential. Um, that's, I think the long game approach is why I shifted to kind of repackaging my business and making it branding focused because I recognized that the work that I was doing apart from branding was draining me and it was making me, um, yeah, just exhausted and it didn't feel fulfilling And so I know that there is design work out there that does bring me life and that I do really care about. And the other element we haven't talked about is that one of the core values of Miro is empowerment. Like one of my, the things that makes me so excited about my work is that I actually get to partner with people and give them tools that they need to achieve their dreams. And so um, I think the long game is the whole reason that I decided to do Marrow because I know um, for me, work slash play, because I believe they go hand in hand, um, is something that I really want to pursue for my whole life, um, as long as I can. Like my grandpa is 90 years old and he still goes into the law office every single day. And I wanna be that because I don't ever wanna stop working because I believe that work was given to us as a gift. Mm. And when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing that it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a burden. Um, So the long game approach helped me to see that um, because I I see where I wanna be when I'm 90. Um, obviously I don't want to be working as much, (laughs) maybe 90 is a little old, but, um, I also maybe don't want to live till I'm 90. We'll, we'll see. We'll talk about that later. But, um, science is doing some crazy things. Yes. I don't want to be 90 (laughs) unless I can like have the body of a 50 year old. Um, but I think, yeah, the long game is what gave me that desire to focus on my marrow, my essence so that I can come every morning with a desire to work and to help other people um, and to create powerful things that make a difference. And so um, to do that, I think having that view of, you know, I am a limited resource. How do I use the most and use it efficiently of me? And for me, Mm -hmm. that meant cutting out the work that does not bring me joy and that does not ultimately get me where I want to go um yeah being this idea of the long game is like pretty thematic for me I'm a a pretty slow steady methodical person Um, my my husband my partner is the dreamer and so we've actually been able to um balance each other and teach each other certain things um he's taught me how to dream and how to um yeah just be bigger and I've taught him I think a little bit about the the steady progress forward um yeah I I love that the uh I've had a similar experience in saying that I think I've put a lot of pressure on myself and you know I'm I'm through the third draft of this novel it is almost ready I'm getting I just had the first person uh that wasn't me read it and give me feedback last week. And, you know, there were portions of it that were awesome and portions of it that were painful. Like I've got a little more work to do, right? But the idea that 
well, I know this is the thing I am going to do for as long as I'm alive is somewhat freeing. Like if, if this goes the way I expect, like this will just be one of a dozen different books I write. And it kind of releases some of the pressure. I don't need to fit everything I could ever say into this thing. Right. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, with, with your grandpa, it reminds me of John Irving, the novelist. They asked him like, well, how long do you think you're going to write? And he's like, well, if I'm lucky, I will die at my desk with an unfinished book. And I was like, man, to, that just, to me, that sounded perfect. Like what a way to go right there in that flow state, not noticing time, not even realizing you're old. You know, like that just, I don't, I'll need to think about it more to know exactly what it is about that that lights me up so much, but it just felt right. So a couple quick hitters. These are meant to be like pretty fast answers. Um, If you could go to a concert with any three artist bands, living or dead, who would they be and who is the headliner? So to me, a concert is different than music you like, right? Because a concert's about experience. Um, and so the three concerts I've been to that were the best experiences for me were Gregory Allen Isakoff, Masego, and St. Paul and the Broken Bones. And solely based on the performance element and how it made me feel, St. Paul and the Broken Bones would be headlining. And I'm a music person, and I whiffed on all three of those, so I'm gonna have to get those names. They're good. I'll I'll, I'll send you a message and hit yeah. you, send you the goodies. That's awesome. All right, what is the best or most memorable advice you've ever received or been given? Oh man, um, don't suffer twice. I don't remember who gave that to me, but it was basically saying, don't worry. Because when you worry, you suffer twice. Because it could be that what you're worrying about never comes to happen. And if you worry about it, you suffered when you didn't need to. And if it does come to happen, then you suffered when you were worrying and you suffered when it happened. Yeah, Tommy, I know you love that. Oh, man. Marcus Aurelius, the Stoics, <laughs> the Stoics are so about don't don't worry about stuff because then you end up suffering it twice. Love yeah, it. it's probably Love where it, it came from. Marcus Aurelius gave me that quote. Yeah, he's a good man, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> nice of him. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's one thing you've learned from your parents that you plan on passing along to your kids? Yeah, I think um, specifically my dad um, modeled to me how to carry things to completion. There's a story, I can't remember if it was Greek mythology or whatnot, about um, an artist who was creating a statue, and the back of the statue was up against the wall. And instead of just, you know, not doing the backside, he completed it. And someone asked him, why did you do that? No one can see that. And he said, the gods can. And so um, that's something that was modeled for me really well, and I just think it matters. Um, And so I just really want to pass that on to Zion and Ada. Oh, that's awesome. Beautiful. Uh, well, 
I'm sure he had like a time frame. Hey, you can come home now. No, no, no. And we're still he talking. Was, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> so uh, last one, and then we'll move on to the weekly segments. If you could put your current brain inside of your 12-year-old self, what does the rest of that life look like? If I could put my current brain in my 12-year-old self, I would skip a lot of years of people-pleasing and trying Mm. to be perfect. Easy as that. I think I would gain a lot more life if I could just skip over those things. (sighs) Man. It's to me that question's always tough because of all the beautiful mess stuff we just talked about. It's like I don't want to divorce any of that past, but at the same time, I'm with you a hundred percent. All right. Weekly segments. This is uh so for those who don't know, we pull one card from the We're Not Really Strangers card game. I've never um, heard of this, so I'm excited. We're not really strangers. First of all, I love the name of the card game because isn't that something we all need to hear, particularly off of our conversations about inputs, right? Um, more than well, Bruce Springsteen did a great commercial on this recently. <laughs> yeah, the Jeep commercial. Yeah. How bad is it Just, though that that I had to when you said my favorite artist and a great message and and Kansas, I was like, I'm not even going to ask him who it is because I had to go look it up. <laughs> Come on, man. The boss. boss. All my cans are out. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this is a great card game. It's usually meant to be played, like, between people and help you share some things that are otherwise difficult to share. Uh, Me and Tommy purchased the self-reflection edition. So if you're listening to this alone at home, you know, work through this question yourself. But we'll all take a shot at answering it. So this week's question is, what's become more important to me recently than ever before? What's become more important to me recently than ever before? And uh, normally Tommy's like shooting from the hip on these things. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually, I know the answer to this one, so I'm going to go ahead. Yep. Um, The thing that's become more important to me recently is simplification. Um, I think it is very important and also difficult to take the storm of ideas and knowledge that is inside our head that comes in as experiences and to funnel out everything that is extraneous to what you wish to communicate to those you care about and give them the helpful information in the way that you mean to. I've, I do this all the time in writing, and it is difficult for me to do it in speech, uh, but I'm trying very hard because I'm starting to already feel a little bit of fear and you know, trying to work through that as I feel it. It's like Walter and... Walter's growing up fast when he's on his heels. Like, am I gonna am I gonna be able to get it all packaged for them? Like, give them what they need before they're out there, right? Like, I can feel it happening, uh, and I just want to know that I did my best. Like, you know, communication's a two way street. I'm not responsible for everything they receive. 
but I feel a heavy responsibility to make what I learn digestible and understandable and to make it fun so that they want to engage with it. And so all of that uh, equates to me simplifying it. And for somebody who is built the way I am, (laughs) that is not necessarily (laughs) the way I naturally come out. So that's the that's the answer for me. That's what's become more important to me recently than ever before. So Grace, we've had kind of dealer's choice. Um, I think half of the folks on the podcast have decided to answer, and and you know, maybe a couple have said, yeah, you know, I'm, that, that's kind of your segment. Do you want to? Do you have an idea or something you want to share? First of all, Dusty, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Don't Tommy. what? Don't what? I said, oh, I said th- thanks for sharing to Dusty because usually I go first and he has to thank me for sharing. <laughs> um, breaking up the order. Yeah, I definitely I have something I can share for sure. Um, so my word for 2021 has definitely been presence and being present is something that has become extremely important to me recently. I think that... Um, historically in my life I have always been looking to the next thing and I'm always planning and I think that's just part of how I'm wired and I'm I want to be going strategic about the the future I'm building but there's something about having kids and seeing how fast they're growing up and um Ada we adopted on six days notice and it was a week after I launched Marrow not ideal timing Um, And because of that, I didn't take a day off until February of this year. So like a couple days ago and just recognizing how much I missed because I'm just looking forward and those are great things. And it's wonderful to be intentional, intentional about the future you're building, but you miss so much by not being present. And so um, yoga has been huge with that for me of you know, at the end of the practice, when you are quieting your mind, um, choosing to sit in that space in your body and be there. Um, and then when you're home with your kids and they're screaming and they're asking for things, be there and balance that with the foresight to build a future in balance with those Mm. things. So that's, that's been big for me recently. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Um, It took me a second to come to this one, and it's probably because it's still uh, still formulating for me. But but uh, I think the phrase "messy is okay" is probably a good one for me. That's become more important. I'm similar, Grace. I'm like a ten day weather forecast guy. You know, (laughs) if we're if we're planning a trip, I'm already I'm already stressed about the forecast here, the forecast where we're going, (laughs) like, like I'm sitting there or, you know, if, um, you know, sometimes Annie will work late, um, as a product of her job and you know, the downstairs, you know, it's all I can do to get the kids fed, get them bathed, get them in bed. And then I'm like, but the downstairs is destroyed. Like there's Legos and food and just coming to a place of, Hey, it's all good. Messy is okay. Messy is actually normal. <laughs> you know, the I, I too have a similar thing of like wanting to project perfection and it's all good and everything's together. So 
coming to coming to grips with that is tough. I just got done talking to Katie about like how vexing it is for me when people are just like passionate about the weather. Like, oh. hey, what's it what's what's it looking like there in Raleigh? It's like I don't know, normal. <laughs> you know, uh, it's only in the winter that that I get like this because I love the snow so much and we get it so rarely here. So I'm like I'm like tracking it, you know. And then it never happens and then I end up you know, I go from like the peak of being like a seven year old pumped about a snow to the same low you get when you had to go to school as a seven year old because it didn't snow. I still ride those waves, but oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple people in my life who, you know, every now and then will like lean in with their phone to show me the way a pattern <laughs> is moving across the states. I'm just like it yeah. looks like it could be trouble. Like I have no idea what I'm looking at. My my grandmother, like to this day, will send me an email and talk to me about the the, the storm pattern coming my way, and I'm like, I have no idea. Like I, she's like, How are you feeling about the hurricane coming? I'm like, What? Like I don't know. I, I wonder at if least growing it's an up- email yeah. instead of like getting a letter. I hope this letter finds you well. <laughs> I wonder if growing up in you know is, is she from from Kansas as well? Oh yeah. So like. You know, storms in Kansas can creep Tornadoes. up on you. Tornadoes. So I, I, there's, there's surely there's something, something to do with that, right? I think right. so. All you need for friendship in the Midwest is like, you know, five words. How's the weather doing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we can hang out for the next 30 minutes. There you go. Uh, all right. Final section, and we'll wrap up. We got everybody is going to make a recommendation. Um, this can be look a book, a TV show, a piece of advice, um, a product. Um, Tommy, you have alluded. Te- yeah, not only have I teased it, I think I gave the whole thing. So I'll just say it again, just for just for the segment's sake, uh, for posterity. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Armchair expert, the recent podcast. Um, I'll probably it's probably not how you pronounce his name. It's been a, it's been a couple of days to listen to it, but uh, Jamil Zakai, Jamil Zaki, uh, he wrote the book uh, "The War for Kindness" and the entire podcast. It's one of those ones that from really from the minute they jump in, there's not a lot of preamble, and from the you know I I could have listened to it for three or four hours, but uh, they they really they really focus on empathy, and and the practicality of developing more, uh, more empathy in your daily life, and it was just really one of those. Uh, you feel encouraged in a world that seems to lack empathy. You feel encouraged at the end. So, yeah, and without getting into it now, but I'm I'm sure in a future conversation I'll talk about Tommy. I listened to that podcast and it made me realize something about my own makeup and orientation of the world and like where where it bubbled up from my own family that I'd never thought about before, and it's insane that I'd never thought about it before. So like. It's a good one. It's a great one. Yeah. Seconding the recommendation. I'm going to go listen to that like tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You should. Uh, Grace, I'll let you go and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Okay. So um, a recommendation, a piece of advice um, that I have actually given to myself in this season that has been incredible is giving yourself permission to not do something that you thought you had to do. So for me, that has been cooking. In this season, when I have two kids and I'm running a business and I'm also helping Dan run a business, 
I said, I can't do it anymore because I'm losing an hour that I could spend with my kids. I am stressed out about it. And it's just not bringing any value to my life. There are other options um, that we can make happen. So I said, this is the season of no cooking. And I give myself permission to not do that. And if anybody says that I have to, then I don't care. It doesn't matter. So especially for women out there, I think there's a lot of expectations that you're going to be a full-time mom, you're going to be a full-time worker, and you're going to do everything in the home. And you can't do it all. You just can't. So give yourself permission to not do something that you thought you always had to do. That's a great piece of advice. Yep. I, I legitimately think if most people are looking to make an improvement in their life, it's not that they need to start doing something. It's usually that they need to stop doing something. Do less. Do less. Which is a lot like what you were saying. You know, like say less to say more. You know, mm-hmm. do less so you yeah. can do more. For sure. Less is more. It's, it's funny how as you get older, these cliches that you just heard thrown around all the time it end up sense. becoming like the truest damn things on the planet. I get mad at myself for the number of times that I say it is what it is in a day because I hate that saying. And then, but and then, guess what? And then, and then I say it, and I'm like, it just fit right there. It just worked, and it and it was profound in that moment. <laughs> it really is what it is. Things become annoying just because they were true over and over and over and over again. And we all want to mm-hmm. be different. We all want to be unique, but. I mean, some things are just true. Undoubtedly. My, uh, my recommendation for the week is simple. Um, it's run. Go for a run. I have not been running because it's been cold, and I've been on the Peloton, and we had some good weather today. And I, used, uh, I still use the Peloton app. They had an outdoor run. I'd never tried it before. It's actually a pretty incredible experience to like have a voice in your head, like metering your pace and like being there with you. It still brought a nice communal element to the event. And she said some things in the run like, okay, we're going to take it out of a jog here. And for 30 seconds, I want you to sprint as fast as you can. And don't be scared. You were a kid. You loved this. You loved to run. You still love to run. 30 seconds, and then I promise we'll come back to a jog. And it had been so long since somebody talked to me that way about running. And even if it was this program, whatever. It felt great. And I ran as fast as I could. Everybody in Raleigh thought I was just jogging, but I wasn't. (laughs) And it felt really good. And I got back in and similar to how we were talking about like all these things you obsess over, you go for a run and it just drops away. I got back in the house and I'm like a chatterbox to Katie. I can't stop talking like about what a great run I just had. Yeah. It's like I was so pumped up about it. Uh, So that's it for me. Just enjoy it. Run like a child. I would love, I would absolutely love to see a dusty at full gallop. I just, <laughs> just want to see it. Those femurs well, just flying everywhere. Femurs and arms flying everywhere. It's, it's kind of like how Usain Bolt doesn't look like he's running that fast because yeah. he's so tall. It's yeah. just like that. That's so, 
It's the exact image <laughs> the, I had in my head. The thing that's embarrassing about it, I told Katie, so the the app actually will like track your peak pace. So <laughs> so I know how fast I was running. And I felt like so I'll also use this opportunity to, to foreshadow. We'll have uh, Grace, I think a mutual friend, Sandy Roberts. Oh yeah. Uh, I hey, I branded his business. Boom. What well, look at it all coming together. It's amazing. Yeah. One of maybe the best realtor in Raleigh for all I know. <laughs> That's right, Sandy Roberts. Uh, <laughs> so Sandy is an incredible runner. Um I'll probably I probably don't have the exact time right, but I I think his fastest mile time is like four oh five. He's right around a four minute. He's mile really time. close to the four minute. Right, which just blows my mind. Right, so the, I I say that to add some context here. My fastest pace when I was doing this run, if I had kept it up for an entire mile, would have been a five fifty mile. <laughs> Still fast, which means to me. even when I was laying the pedal to the metal <laughs> and I could not hold, hold it for thirty seconds, I was like, "I." So I got back in. I tell Katie all this is like, I should probably do more sprinting in my daily life. <laughs> well, Dustin, you're at least over six feet. I am a flat five foot. When I'm running as fast as I can, my feet, my legs just don't carry me. So it's just not even fair. I bet you look really fast, though. Oh, yeah. Roll fast. <laughs> yeah. Our, our youngest is not very fast, but those little chunky legs, when they get going, he looks fast. I'm two steps and on him, but he looks like he's moving fast. That's so cute. All right. Well, Grace, we almost hit the two-hour mark here. I, I am super grateful for you making the time. Yeah, I, I echo that. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and it's sharing, an honor And sharing to your speak story. With you guys. Absolutely. It really, it was a joy and you lose track of time, which is how it's supposed to be when you're sitting down with people and connecting. Um, so thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure was all on this end of the digital divide. Hope we can do it again sometime and, uh, have a wonderful rest of the week. Go get some sleep guys. Yeah. All right. Talk to y'all later. (laughs) See ya. Thanks guys. (laughs) 